All right, good evening. We've got lesson 10 tonight, the public ministry and the keys. Following along in your workbook, this will be on page 66 and following. And there on page 66 on to 67, we see five different parts of Luther's small catechism. Uh, that catechism is the additional textbook that we use that is a nice summary and um, an organization of, of these teachings that we're looking at. It's a, you know, a doctrine book, um, whereas the Bible just kind of goes straight through beginning to end and you see the doctrines as they appear in their natural context. Uh, the catechism kind of pulls them all together into topics. And so there, beginning on page 66, we'll read through this. This is the third article of the Apostles' Creed and then the portion of the catechism that talks about the use of the keys and confession. And if that second part doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. That's kind of the topic of tonight's lesson. So the third article of the Apostles' Creed reads like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own thinking or choosing, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and fully forgives all sins to me and all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. And I think I've said elsewhere that this third article of the Apostles' Creed is where you will find the most differences among Christian churches today. Um, the first two articles of the Creed, you would probably find a lot more consensus and a lot more agreement as to what they teach. But this third article is where you would find most of the differences being highlighted. And so that's why it's important for us to look at it and to look at the passages and the rationale for why do we believe this? And what is it that makes our church unique? And then talking about the keys, uh, first, what is the use of the keys? The keys is, or the use of the keys is that special power and right which Christ gave to his church on earth to forgive the sins of penitent sinners, but refuse forgiveness to the impenitent as long as they do not repent. Where is this written? The holy evangelist John writes in chapter 20, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And then the public use of the keys. Secondly, how does a Christian congregation use the keys? A Christian congregation with its called servant of Christ uses the keys in accordance with Christ's command by forgiving those who repent of their sin and are willing to amend and by excluding from the congregation those who are plainly impenitent, that they may repent. I believe that when this is done, it is as valid and certain in heaven also, as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. Where is this written? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And finally, confession. First, what is confession? Confession has two parts. The one is that we confess our sins, the other that we receive absolution or forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that our sins are thus forgiven before God in heaven. Second, what sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. Third, how can we recognize these sins? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, employer, or employee? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you hurt anyone by word or deed? Have you been dishonest, careless, wasteful, or done other wrong? Going on to the next page. Fourth, how will the pastor assure a penitent sinner of his forgiveness? He will say, by the authority of Christ, I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's the background um, for what we're going to be looking at tonight, which is the use of the keys and, um, and the public ministry of the keys. And so tonight, I'm just going to pause or flip to a different 
screen here. Excellent. And there we are. So John chapter eight. We'll make this a little bit a little bit bigger. John chapter eight, beginning in verse two. Well, verse one really. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses committed us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. That is our reading. John chapter 8, reading the first 11 verses. Number 1, considering what we just read, these men weren't lying when they pointed out that God's Old Testament law said that this woman should be put to death for adultery. As you can see in Leviticus 20, verse 10, why might God have commanded such a harsh penalty? We're going to look at that in our auxiliary passages from Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of another man, if he commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must certainly be put to death. And that's kind of the, the unspoken background to this um, account from John chapter 8 that they caught this woman in adultery. And you can't commit adultery by yourself. But they didn't bring the man in also to be put to death. Anyway, um, that's an entire another topic for another time. But obviously they are coming with an agenda. They are not coming with the purpose of simply fulfilling the law. Why might God have commanded such a harsh penalty? Well... He wanted the Israelites to understand the seriousness of sin. And, and also, you know, even beyond that, that they were moving into a land where every aspect of, of, their, of the lives of the people who had lived there, the Canaanites, every aspect of their life was connected in some way to the misuse and the abuse of the body. That it was not in line with the way that God had designed marriage to be and the body to be used. And God wanted to provide, you know, obviously he knows the temptation because God is the one who designed and created the body. But God wanted to provide a little bit of an extra incentive or a little bit of extra assistance so that when the Israelites were feeling tempted to um, go against what God says in his, in his word, in his law about, you know, you're supposed to be married and then the godly use of the body takes place within the context of a proper Christian marriage. Um, when they were tempted to disobey that and commit adultery, this would be an extra incentive or an extra reminder that this is a serious matter that God wanted to be honest about. Number two, the men tried to make it look like they were being very concerned with God's law. What were they actually trying to do according to verses 5 and 6? Um, going back to... Oh, here we are. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And um, and that question, obviously, excuse me, that question um, is obviously a trap because they only brought in the woman. If they were sincerely concerned, they would actually look at, at what the Old Testament ceremonial law said. So what were they trying to do? Trying to catch Jesus in a mistake. Trying to pin him between the law of the land and the law of God's people. Read John chapter 18, verse 31. Under Roman rule in Jesus' day, what were the Jewish people not allowed to do? 
It's in our auxiliary passages here. John 18, verse 31. Pilate told the Jewish leaders, asking for Jesus' death, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said, It's not legal for us to put anyone to death. All right. So according to the law of the day, they, the Jewish people, were not allowed to execute anyone. Not that it didn't happen. Um, you think of the book of Acts and Stephen. Um, right around Acts 6, 7, or 8, somewhere in there, Stephen was put to death by being pelted with stones until dead. So maybe there's a little bit of a loophole. Maybe the Romans just looked the other way as long as the crowd didn't get out of hand. But in this particular case, the Jewish leaders are trying to catch Jesus and encourage her, <laughs> encourage him to say, we should put her to death. So how could they have accused Jesus of wrongdoing if he had said, yes, put her to death? Well, he would have been telling them to break Roman law. If Jesus says, yes, put her to death, then, then they would have said, oh, we have somebody who is encouraging, encouraging us to put this person to death, to carry out mob justice. And, um, and surely, surely he is a lawbreaker. Rome, do something with him. <laughs> but how could they have accused Jesus of wrongdoing if he had said, no, don't kill her? Well, then he would have been telling them to break God's laws instead. So he's kind of trapped between a rock and a hard place, you might say. Either he says, yes, kill her, and they'll get him on the Roman law, or no, don't kill her, and they'll say, well, he's breaking God's law. What do you say, Jesus? <laughs> Number six. And this is important. Uh, sometimes people use these verses of the Bible to say that we should never talk to anyone about their sin. They might say that it is judgmental or unloving to say that something that someone is doing is wrong. Read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. Jesus speaks very plainly about talking to others about their sins. What does he say? Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. There we are. A little bit longer selection here. Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his sin just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have regained your brother. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as an unbeliever or a tax collector. And verse 18. There we are. Amen, I tell you. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Don't use that phraseology very often. Jesus speaks very plainly about talking to others about their sin, um, especially public sin, right? What does Jesus say? That we should talk to people about their sins in a loving way to try to lead them to repentance. Um, that <laughs> does God call us to be judge judgmental? No, but he certainly, certainly calls us to judge. That it's not the attitude of self-righteous arrogance that I'm better than you and I've got it right and so you've got it wrong and you're the one who needs to change. No, it's the attitude of, of a fellow sinner. Dear friend, I know you're trapped. I know um, that you're being pulled in every direction by temptation and I don't want that for you because that is going to destroy your faith and I want to see you in heaven one day. I don't want your faith destroyed by your persistent, unrepentant sin. So we talk to people about their sins in a loving way. And that, that loving way that we have here, um, sometimes that's, that's very serious and, and very blunt. Um, you know, I, I, I had that conversation with, with somebody at one time. This was a number of years ago in a, in a different state entirely, different church entirely. And, um, and it was a, a young woman who happened to be living with a man who was not her husband. And, uh, and they had a child together, and, um, and she didn't want to change anything. You know, it's, we've got our wedding date planned for a couple of years from now, and we'll get around to it, Pastor, and, and don't worry about it. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's snowy today, and it's icy on these roads, and what I'm hearing, the way you talk today, tells me that you want to be a Christian, but you like your sin more. 
that um, that if you were to slide off that road today, <laughs> I would not be able to comfort your family with the assurance that you're in heaven. Why? Because faith isn't just the mere knowledge of fact. Faith is fact that is put into action through trust. And yes, that's a miracle of God, and God must be the one who brings that about. But um, that trust, that knowledge that is put into action through trust, results in an attitude that says, what God says is better than what I decide. And so I'm not going to cling to my personal preference when God has very clearly spoken against that. That's kind of the serious talk that Jesus just had in Matthew 18. And we're going to come around to that again. That's talking about the use of the keys, the public ministry of the keys. Number seven, how do you know that Jesus wasn't saying to the woman, your sins don't matter, don't worry about them, but that he saw them as dangerous and that was important for her to stop? Looking at verse 11, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus told her to stop sinning. You know, when we're, we're definitely compassionate um, and encouraging. And nobody, nobody should understand the, the, the trap of sin as well as a Christian congregation and their pastor. And nobody should be as humble about it as a Christian congregation and their pastor. Um, but sometimes, and a lot of times, <laughs> the person who is trapped in sin knows it knows that they what that what they're doing is incorrect and wrong and their conscience often testifies against them and they feel that guilt they feel that sense of guilt and so then oftentimes even the, the slightest little word is going to be taken and glommed onto and understood as well pastor said this to me um and pastor you know he came across like that and what is really going on there is the conscience has done its work of convicting the person of sin and then when they heard it with their own ears from somebody else, that only reaffirmed what they already knew deep down in their hearts and had tried to forget. Um, that's what we're dealing with here, is, is the trap of sin and its serious effects. Because if it's left unchecked and if it's left forgotten, then that sin is, will destroy faith. Okay. Uh, number eight, we must take sin seriously as Jesus did. If we claim that we aren't sinners or that our sins don't matter, we are unrepentant. In 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10, what does John say is true about us if we are unrepentant? Looking over here at our auxiliary passages. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Ooh, strong. Um, what does John say is true about us if we are unrepentant? Well, we're lying to ourselves, and we're calling God a liar. Um, that God says it's sin, and then if I say it's not, and... Uh, or I say, you know, more often it's, well, that's what you, your Bible says. That's what you say your Bible says. That's what your church believes. But I don't think so. Not in my heart. This feels right. This feels okay. And what that is, is calling God a liar. Saying, God, you know, your word says that this is wrong. I think you're lying to me because it feels right in my heart. And it's really, it's really putting up an idol in our own hearts that I have the authority to say and do what I want and that authority is stronger than what God says. Uh, page 68, top of the page. Our key term there, unrepentant or impenitent, uh, that describes someone who is not sorry for his or her sins and does not want to change. And um, yeah, there's, there's two parts there. There's the sorrow over sin and then the turning away from that sin. And that can take some time. Somebody may recognize that their sin is harmful. If you're dealing with somebody with addiction issues, um, this comes up fairly regularly in the pastoral ministry as well, dealing with somebody who is dealing with addiction. Um, yes, it's a sin 
but it's a very habitual sin, and it may even have some physiological effects of ensnaring that person through through habit, through setting, or through you know the effects that like alcohol or something has on their body. But it's still a still sinful. And so how do we address that? Well, they might recognize I'm sorry for this and I see how it's beginning to tear my life apart or ruin my life, um, but they're not yet at the place of wanting to change. Well, hopefully the Christian church takes the approach of encouraging them, saying, I'm here for you and we want you to succeed and we want you to turn your life around and we want you to leave this sin we want to encourage you so that you are not snared and trapped in this habitual sin. Um, so that that person not only is it, becomes, yes, sorry for their sin, but then also wants to change from that sin. There's two parts there. Uh, 1 John 1, 8-10, we just read that. What, do we pro what does God promise to do when we confess our sins to him? That is verse 9, right in the middle if we confess our sins to God, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful statement that God is faithful, God is just, God will cleanse us and forgive us. Awesome. So our key term, penitent or repentant, this describes somebody who is sorry for his or her sins and wants to stop sinning. Um, and, and it it may take some time before they are finally out of that cycle and and it might be a sensitive issue that they fall back into or have the you know the temptation to fall back into for a long time afterward um, but that's where the Christian encouragement comes along that dear friend when you were baptized you were raised with Jesus to a new life with him and that is God's work in you and he wants to carry that work on until completion until the day that he brings you to heaven um, in the verses we read previously, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, Jesus talked about binding and loosing, using the terms unlocking and locking. He has given us these keys, which bind and loose to the church. We are to use the locking key, or the binding key, for people who are unrepentant. The locking or binding key is just a statement of God's law. That, dear friend, um, your sin is locked to you. And because your sin is bound to you, um, the door to heaven is as good as locked to you. That if this is the case, that you persist in this unrepentant sin, you have forsaken the faith, you have turned away from uh, forgiveness in Jesus, and your sin is bound to you and locked to you, and the door to heaven is locked. It's a serious statement of fact that, yes, Jesus died for your sin, but through your unrepentance, through your impenitence, you have forsaken that forgiveness. Okay, We use that locking key or binding key with people who are unrepentant or impenitent. And we use the unlocking key or the loosing key for those who are repentant. The unlocking key or loosing key is the statement of gospel that you are not going to die. Jesus has forgiven your sin, that your sin is forgiven. Your sin has been released from you, loosed, set free away from you. And because of that, the door to heaven is unlocked and open to you. Uh, the small catechism explains it this way. The use of the keys is that special power and right which Christ gave to his church on earth to forgive the sins of penitent sinners, but refuse forgiveness to the impenitent as long as they do not repent. So our key term, unlocking key or the loosing key, that's that statement of gospel. This is the duty to assure somebody who is repentant that his or her sins are forgiven. This is the right to pronounce the gospel. Really, the key is the gospel, that your sin is forgiven. And, um, and the reverse of that, the locking key or the binding key, you know, locking one sin to somebody, and because of that, in God's eyes, they are seen as sinful, even though Jesus died to pay for their sin, and because of that, the door to heaven is locked shut. This is the duty to declare to somebody who is unrepentant that his or her sins are not forgiven. This is the solemn responsibility to withhold the gospel and to say, you know, declare only the law. That because of your unrepentance, you have forsaken and forfeited the forgiveness that Jesus won for you, and you will be going to hell unless this changes. Yeah. <laughs>
and and that's never said with a judgmental attitude like well better you than me <laughs> but it's this attitude of of sorrow but sternness that i don't take pleasure in ever saying that to anybody but i don't have the right as a fellow christian and especially as a pastor on behalf of a congregation i don't have the right to not say that when it is needed okay any questions of course um let me know maybe i'll just add my add my contact information here pastor hagan at iacloud.com probably have seen that before and it's in the show notes or 419-262-8280 you can call or text um, with any questions or any any follow-up right okay so that's the binding key and the loosing key or the binding key and the unlocking <laughs> key and the unlocking key all right so number 10 why would we use the unlocking key that's that statement of forgiveness that statement of gospel um, to bring eternal comfort to someone who is scared because of the punishment that he or she deserves for their sins. That the conscience is a real thing, and the conscience is only the statement of God's law within our hearts. <laughs> but that external statement of the gospel is the only thing that can take away that guilt. Number, t number 11, why would we use the locking key? This is the binding key. Statement of law. To warn somebody that his or her sins will lead to hell and that he or she needs a savior. And I would add um, that continued impenitence there we are that continued impenitence forfeits the forgiveness Jesus has won. Yeah, I don't know any other way to, to put it. To say, you know, call God a liar and to say, you know, I don't need, I don't need that forgiveness that Jesus won for me. I'm going to do it on my own. Um, you're going to stand before God and you're going to, you're not going to have your own standard. It's going to be using God's standard, which he has already told us in his word. Number 12, one of the problems, excuse me, with the religious leaders who brought the woman before Jesus is that they thought they were better than she was, that they didn't think they were sinners as she was in matthew 23 verses 13 through 36 jesus directly condemned this attitude that is not the right spirit for using the keys what is our goal in using the locking or unlocking keys well that all people know that their sins are serious and they trust that god has taken those sins away and the person and work of jesus christ and that forgiveness has been brought home to you through his word and sacrament, through holy baptism, holy communion, through the word of absolution or the word of forgiveness from your pastor or from another fellow Christian, you have the assurance of the forgiveness that Jesus has won for you. All right. Number, excuse me, top of page 69 there, there is a nice diagram. Um, Christ gave the keys. The keys are to forgive or to not forgive. The forgiving key is called the loosing key, and the not forgiving key is called the binding key. These keys have been given to all believers. In order, the loosing key is to comfort the penitent or the repentant, and to warn the impenitents so that they may repent. And so, when you hear a statement from a fellow Christian or yeah, or from a congregation that dear friend, your sin is forgiven or your sin is not forgiven, keep in mind. This is what Jesus says. This is Christ speaking. So number 13. When I have sinned against someone or against God alone, what will I do? Well, I'll speak to that person. Or speak to God about my sin and ask for forgiveness. And that it's that humility that is the attitude of faith. It's not as though the asking for forgiveness then makes the forgiveness real. But it it confesses to God what he already knows and that we that we only can stand before him on the basis of the person work of Jesus Christ which is our key term confession of sins acknowledging our sins before God 
Um, yeah, we do that every worship service um, publicly together. And, um, and also, you know, privately I get to meet with people and um, oftentimes in the context of pastoral counseling, um, which, and as well as, you know, just individual private confession and absolution where somebody says, you know, pastor, this is, this is what I've done and I feel terrible about it. And, uh, and we talk about it and that person admits their sin before me and before God. And I get to announce your sin is forgiven, that you are free. Um, that you've been set free from that guilt of that sin. And, um, and I guess this is the, we'll talk about it here in just a little bit, that when we talk about private confession absolution, you're probably most familiar with it from seeing it on TV, like in, or TV shows or movies, where the person goes to sit in the confessional with the Catholic priest, and they confess what they did, or maybe you know the mobster confesses that what he's going to do, and the priest says, oh, go say five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers, or whatever the case may be. That's not confession and absolution. That's admitting that you did something, and then being told that if you do something else, you'll pay it off and make it better. That's not the way the Bible describes it. The way the Bible describes it is that we confess our sins to that person, that priest or that pastor, and that is the same as confessing to God himself. And then that pastor or priest gets to announce the forgiveness of Jesus, full and free and clear and done. And so when you confess to your pastor, um, that is, that's protected by law, by even <laughs> um, legal precedent in, in this country has stronger protections for a person speaking privately with their pastor than even um, like attorney-client privilege. Um, there are stronger pr protections for, you know, pastoral, pastor and layperson. Um, confidentiality um, and together with that what what somebody confesses you know basically goes into my ears and and that's it. it I never talk about it with anybody I never mention it to anybody it's between that person me and God and then I get to announce what God has done for them that yes your sin is forgiven and I never make mention of it again um, in, in any context um, not not sitting around home uh, not as a sermon illustration you know, not specifically, I might say, you know, that we do offer private confession absolution where a person, you know, I meet with a person privately here at church and they get to confess what they've been carrying on their heart for a long time. And rather than being told, this is what you have to do, they hear, this is what Jesus has done. Okay? So that's private confession absolution. Uh, public confession absolution happens every Sunday. When we all stand up together and say, I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And the pastor says, Christ has died, Christ has risen because of his perfect life, innocent death, and victorious resurrection. Your sin is forgiven. Whew, a lot of background here. Um, number 14. When people come and apologize for wrongs that they have done against us, what will we want to do? Read Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer printed on the following page. Um, I think it's part of our homework tonight. There we are. We're going to skip over the reading of Matthew chapter 18 right now. Right, where are we? Number 14. Printed on the following page, we have the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. This is the top of page 70 in your workbook. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look upon our sins, or because of them deny our prayers. For we are worthy of none of the things for which we ask, neither have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much, and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So too, we will forgive from the heart, and gladly do good to those who sin against us. So what will we want to do? We will want to assure them that we forgive them and that God has forgiven them, just as God has forgiven us. So that is the use of the keys. And um, we'll see an application of that here from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Jesus sends his disciples out with the ministry of forgiveness. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Here we are. On the evening of the first day of the week, actually, I'll, sorry. Uh, there we are, now we'll share it. 
On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Alright. So number 15. Jesus met with his disciples the same day he had risen from the dead. What do we know about how the disciples were feeling at that time? If you look at verse 19. With the doors locked for fear of the Jews. So they are terrified, they're afraid, they're wondering what's going to happen next. Are we going to die? They were scared. <laughs> Quick summary there. Um, oh, sorry, the, the summary points on page 70 there. Underneath where it says John 20, verse 19 to 23 in green print, uh, the two summary points. While we certainly will forgive and not forgive sins in our private lives as we deal with people, God sends individuals to do this work in a public way also. Jesus, and secondly, Jesus sent out his apostles, a term that means sent ones, as some of the first New Testament public ministers. God continues to supply his holy Christian church with public workers today. Number 16. What effect did Jesus' appearance have that evening there on the disciples? Well, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. He said, peace be with you. And they're like, hey, this is wonderful. Um, they were overjoyed. He showed them that he really was alive again. Number 17, what was the main work that Jesus was sending his disciples to do? <clears throat> if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So bring people the forgiveness of sins. Number 18, what tools would they use to do that work? Read Mark 13 verses 9 through 11. This will be in our supplemental passages. Um, Matthew. There we are. Mark 13, 9 through 11. Jesus said, but be on your guard. People will hand you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand in the presence of rulers and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Whenever they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you will say. Say whatever is given to you in that hour, because you will not be the one speaking. Instead, it will be the Holy Spirit. Excellent. So what tools? Uh, the gospel, the means of grace. Number 19. According to Mark 13, 9 through 11, who would be working through them when they spoke and did that work? It will not be you, but it will be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. The Holy Spirit. Um, what we call the third person of the Trinity. The disciples were called by Jesus into the public ministry. Our key term, the public ministry, the work done by people, God has called to serve others publicly with the means of grace. And... The reminder here that the public minister is called by Christ through his church. Um, so a pastor doesn't just wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, I feel called to go to Albuquerque or whatever the case may be, Omaha. Um, no, that church, whatever, a church in a particular place like Maumee, Ohio, extends a call and, and contacts a pastor and says, we have called you to consider coming to be our pastor. Um, that's how that's how that kind of works and we'll talk about that again I'm sure it'll come up again soon so number 20 the public ministry can take several different forms according to the needs of the church what are some of the ministry options that the Apostle Paul listed in Ephesians 4 11 and 12 Jesus himself gave the apostles, as well as the prophets, as well as the evangelists, as well as the pastors and teachers, for the purpose of training the saints for the work of serving, in order to build up the body of Christ. 
Okay. So we've got quite a quite a list. That's not a comprehensive list in everything, um, but the list that we have is apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Number 21, what are some of the forms we have in our own congregation? Um, pastor, Sunday school teachers, Sunday school administrator, um, elders for sure, and to a lesser degree, some of the other positions on the council, as well as um, our VBS teachers to, in a limited sense um, that they are called to, to serve and to share the word of God with others, whatever that word may need to be. Number 22, one of the most common forms of the public ministry throughout history is that of the pastor. What are some of the jobs that a pastor is called to do? Well, preach and teach, administer the sacraments, pray for the people, um, and use the keys, administer the keys on behalf of the church. Sometimes this is called the public ministry, sometimes the representative ministry, that when Pastor Hagen goes to visit with somebody or teaches a class like this one, um, I'm not doing that just as a guy named Peter, but I'm doing that on behalf of the congregation of that has called me, in this case, the Congregation of Resurrection Lutheran Church of Maumee, Ohio. So our key term, the pastor is a man called to care for God's people with the word and the sacraments. 23. The word pastor means shepherd. We can compare the work of a shepherd with the work of a pastor. Pastor, pasture. <laughs> Read Acts chapter 20 verse 28. In what way are those two jobs similar? Right here. This was our reading from this past Sunday. Paul said to the elders of the congregation in Ephesus, always keep watch over yourselves and over the whole flock in which the Holy Spirit has placed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So pastors carefully watch over the ones entrusted to them, just like a shepherd. A shepherd has to keep track of the flock and not let them wander all off on their own all over the hillside. He wants to keep them together, um, wants to encourage them to stay together and make sure that they are well fed. Um, Pastorally, we do this spiritually. Number 24, read 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5. How do these jobs differ? There we are, fit the whole thing on. Paul says, Preach the word, be ready whether it is convenient or not. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with all patience in teaching. For there will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, because they have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in line with their own desires. They will also turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. As for you, keep a clear head in every situation. Bear hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. How are these two jobs different? Well, Plain and simple, a shepherd serves the physical needs of animals. A pastor serves the spiritual needs of people. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul outlines the qualifications for a pastor. What are they? A little bit longer lesson tonight, but this is important. We'll go about this far and then we'll scroll. This thing is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to become an overseer, he desires a noble task. It is necessary then for the overseer to be above reproach, the husband of only one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a violent man, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. It is necessary that he manage his own household well, with all dignity, making sure that his children obey him. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Scroll over to the other side. 
He must not be a recent convert, or he might become conceited and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. In addition, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. All right. So the qualifications, there are many. Um, basically, yeah. He has to be a good ambassador for God. That is above reproach. He has to manage his own household well. He has to um, be self-controlled and respectable. <laughs> All those things. Um, and, and it has to be a man. Um, that's part of the order that God had built into his church in the way that he had designed the relationship of man and woman. And I think one of the special temptations, especially after the fall into sin that we saw in Genesis 3, one of the special temptations is that men don't want to step up and take the responsibility that God has entrusted to them. And that's a special temptation for a man. And perhaps a special temptation for a woman is to get frustrated and say, step aside and let me take care of this. But the relationship of man and woman within God's church is that we both listen to the word of God, even when, um, when it's not as convenient as we would like, and even when it calls us to do things that we'd rather not do, or that might be difficult. And so pastorally, um, God wants men who are willing to be you know, self-controlled, respectable, and worthy ambassadors who are, well, you know, organized enough to um, run their own family and to oversee God's church because this is a tremendous responsibility. Number 26, a pastor has the privilege and responsibility of using the keys on behalf of the congregation. He may do this, for example, when a Christian confesses sins directly to him. When might it be useful or beneficial to correct, confess your sins directly to the pastor, your pastor? Well, when that sin is troubling you, plain and simple. Um, because Jesus rose from the dead, we don't want people walking around under guilt or shame, right? What can a pastor do for you in that situation? He can reassure you that your sin is forgiven. Not just all of your sins, but this specific thing um, is not so guilty or so shameful that Jesus didn't die for it. That Jesus, yes, he died for that one too. He rose from the dead and you have been baptized into that resurrection. 28. Part of a pastor's responsibility, along with the rest of the congregation, is to use the keys publicly to confront and forgive sin, which we talked about above. If someone is not willing to, even to listen to a pastor who speaks to him about his sin, what must the congregation do with the locking key and the binding key? The other term we use is their statement of law. A congregation will warn an unrepentant member that unrepentant sin isn't forgiven. Or that unrepentant sin There we go. Prefer that. That unrepentant sin demonstrates an attitude that forfeits forgiveness. Okay. Um, in the red box on page 71, on the right-hand side, the source and duties of our pastors. No one can just decide to serve a congregation as a pastor. A pastor must be called by a congregation to serve them with the means of grace and the keys. The authority for a congregation to call pastors and other called workers comes from Jesus. Some of the things a pastor of a local congregation is typically called to do include preach the gospel in its truth and purity, administer the sacraments, and establish and maintain sound Lutheran practice at all times. Pastors in our church body, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, are thoroughly trained in college and at the seminary, studying God's word so that they can be faithful shepherds to our congregations. What a pastor says should be respected, but it should also be tested, as we talked about in Lesson 9, to make sure that everything the pastor is teaching or preaching is faithful to God's Word. Finishing up on page 72. Our key term at the top of the page, excommunication. The last act of love a congregation shows an unrepentant person by excluding that person from the congregation to lead them to repentance. That is the statement by a congregation, basically you know, a unified statement, that, dear friend, 
through your persistent sin, your unrepentance, you have demonstrated that you are not in fellowship with us, that you believe something else entirely, that you place your own opinion higher than the word of God. And this is the entire congregation warning you that if that continues, and that is the case, that you, when you, if, if that continues throughout the rest of your life, that when you die, um, you'll be going to hell. It's very strong. It um, doesn't happen very often. But, uh, but when it does, it's always serious. And it's always undertaken with that sense of somberness and um, that sense of hoping and wishing that things will change. So the public ministry, that diagram on page 72, um, ordained by God to guide group, groups of Christians with the gospel, the minister must be qualified and called. To minister publicly means to preach and teach the word, to administer the sacraments, to use the binding and loosing keys publicly, and under this term, that they are servants of Christ. So our connection question for today. Our society has developed a very permissive attitude toward actions that God says are sinful. Why is it very important that we speak clearly about God's will for our lives? Well, our society does have a tremendous influence on us. It is important that we all recognize the reality and seriousness of sin and not develop an attitude of unrepentance which rejects God's forgiveness. All right, as far as homework, um, and read Matthew chapter 18 in its entirety, as well as at the bottom of page 72 in the box, um, there's some portions from Luther's Catechism uh, for you to read and um, to review the terms that we talked about tonight. Obviously, if you have any questions or comments, contact me, Pastor Hagen, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N at iCloud.com or 419-262-8280. Make sure to read Matthew 18 and check out our podcast, the daily podcast Raised with Jesus, um, RWJ Daily. Uh, daily Bible reading sermons and commentary, and all of these recordings will be found also at RWJ membership, uh, the auto recordings of our membership course. Obviously, contact me if you need a free workbook. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless your day.